You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode 106 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we focused our attention on the Confederacy's efforts to use the salvaged hull and engines of the USS Merrimack as the basis to construct a new iron-armored warship, the CSS Virginia. This week, we'll turn our gaze northward and look at the Union's answer to the Confederate ironclad. It was no secret that the rebels were working on constructing an ironclad. Gideon Wells, Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Navy, found out about the progress the Confederacy was making on converting the Merrimack's remains simply by reading the newspapers. And as work proceeded on the Virginia, it became evident to Wells that if the enemy succeeded in launching its ironclad, then there wasn't a Union ship at Hampton Roads or anywhere else that could stand up to her. And so Wells quickly took measures that would allow the U.S. Navy to build its own ironclad. Last week, we talked about how the Confederacy was lucky to have the capable and hardworking Stephen Mallory serve as Secretary of the Navy in Jefferson Davis's cabinet. But the Union was just as fortunate that Mallory's counterpart in Washington was Connecticut-born Gideon Wells. Wells came from a prosperous family. His father was a shipbuilder and West Indies merchant. Gideon received an excellent education, attending an Episcopal Academy and the future Norwich University. He then became interested in journalism and politics. At the end of 1845, President James K. Polk offered Wells the post of chief of the Naval Bureau of Provisions and Clothing. There was some opposition among naval officers to a civilian in that position, but Polk persisted and Wells quieted concerns by doing an excellent job. He held the position during the Mexican War from April 1846 until the new Whig president, Zachary Taylor, removed him in 1849. Wells returned to Connecticut and wrote for a number of Democratic newspapers and journals, but he broke with the party over the Kansas-Nebraska Act. When the new Republican Party formed in 1855, Wells became the first Republican candidate for governor of Connecticut. Although he failed to win the 1856 election, in May 1860, he was a member of the Connecticut delegation to the Republican National Convention in Chicago, and he contributed significantly to the nomination of Abraham Lincoln. Wells was therefore one of Lincoln's top choices for his cabinet, and shortly after becoming president, Lincoln appointed him Secretary of the Navy. Eventually, Lincoln came to rely on both Wells' candor and his loyalty, and like Stephen Mallory, 
Gideon Wells would serve in his post throughout the Civil War. As mentioned before, there was no shortage of intelligence crossing Wells' desk concerning the Confederates' progress converting the Merrimack into the Virginia. Although the rebels had gotten a head start, Wells soon decided the Federal Navy needed to embark on its own saltwater ironclad program in the war's eastern theater. Remember that the Union was already at work building ironclads out in the war's western theater, but those were designed specifically to operate on the region's rivers, and so it was thought a much different design was needed for ironclads that would operate in the coastal waters of the Atlantic. Exactly. So in August 1861, Wells requested, and Congress passed, a bill authorizing $1.5 million to construct three ironclad warships, and he formed a board of three senior captains to select the best designs. Would-be inventors submitted 16 proposals, but the board only selected two of them. One of those designs was by a fellow named Cornelius Bushnell, who was sponsoring a design by Samuel Pook for a sloop-rigged steamer with an exaggerated tumble home covered with several layers of interlocking iron plates. Someone suggested that with all of that armor, the ship was unlikely to float, so to refute those doubts, Bushnell decided to travel to Brooklyn to have an expert on ship construction named John Erickson check Pook's design. John Ericsson was born in Sweden in 1803. He joined the Swedish Army in 1817 as a lieutenant of topographical engineers, but he showed an amazing aptitude for mechanical engineering. In 1827, Ericsson immigrated to England to study steam propulsion, and while there, he designed many unique devices, including a screw propeller. That brought him to the attention of U.S. Navy Captain Robert Stockton. Stockton convinced Erickson to relocate to the United States. Stockton then used his political influence to arrange for Erickson to design the machinery for the Princeton, the world's first steam-driven screw warship. The Princeton performed as expected, but during a demonstration on Potomac River in 1844, a cannon designed by Stockton exploded, killing several people, including the secretaries of state and navy. Although the accident had absolutely nothing to do with any of the work Erickson had done on the ship, some of the blame for the incident nonetheless attached to him, and this experience soured Erickson on the U.S. Navy. He vowed never to do any work for the government again, and for the next 17 years, he designed commercial steamships and patented other innovations. In 1861, he did not submit a proposal to the Ironclad Board. So that brings us back to Cornelius Bushnell traveling to Brooklyn to consult with Erickson about Pook's design. Erickson looked over the plans and assured Bushnell that the ship would float, and then Erickson asked his visitor if he'd like to see a model for an ironclad that Erickson himself had designed. Bushnell was so impressed by Erickson's model and the unique features of the Swede's design that he persuaded Erickson to let him show it to Wells and President Lincoln. Both men were intrigued. Lincoln was fascinated by new technology. He remains the only president to hold a patent, having invented a device for lifting riverboats over sandbars in the 1840s. The president was so impressed with Erickson's design that he went personally to the meeting of the ironclad board the next day. When the naval officers expressed skepticism over Erickson's ironclad, Lincoln shared his own opinion in a characteristic way by declaring simply, quote, 
All I can say is what the girl said when she stuck her foot in the stocking. It strikes me there's something in it. End quote. Thanks in part to the president's support, the ironclad board somewhat reluctantly approved Erickson's design, along with Pook's proposal, which became the USS Galena, and an armored frigate, which became the USS New Ironsides. Erickson's ironclad, in effect, had two hulls, an upper or armored raft supported by a lower metal hull. The raft portion had 2 inches of iron plating on the deck and 4.5 inches on the sides. To shield the hull, the armor extended 3.5 feet below the waterline. Central to Erickson's design was a 120-ton revolving turret containing two smoothbore guns. 20 feet in diameter and 9 feet high, the turret was formed of rolled 1-inch thick iron plates bolted together around an iron framework to a thickness of 8 inches. When in its stowed position, the turret rested on a brass ring set in the deck. When the ship went to battle stations, the turret was raised or keyed up so that when a crew member turned a control wheel, steam pressure put the turret into motion. It took about 30 seconds to rotate it through 360 degrees. Designed to house two 12-inch muzzle-loading Dahlgren smoothbore cannon, only 11-inch pieces were available when the time came to mount the guns in the turret. Weighing nearly 8 tons each and firing 166-pound solid shot, the guns were mounted on specially designed friction carriages that, when the guns were fired, absorbed the massive recoil and brought them to a stop resting on the rear end of the chassis. The gun port openings were protected by thick iron shields that were designed like pendulums so that they hung from overhead and swung up out of the way when the gun was run out for firing, and then, after the cannon recoiled, they dropped back into place to protect the crew from enemy fire. Because of the confined space within the turret, each iron shield had a hole through the center to allow the handles of the gun tools to protrude outside the turret when the cannon were being loaded. The ship was 179 feet long, with a beam of 41 feet 6 inches. Fully fitted out, Erickson's ironclad weighed 776 tons and had a very shallow draft of 11 feet 4 inches, and its deck stood barely 18 inches above the waterline. The ship was powered by two steam engines that were designed by Erickson himself. They turned a drive shaft, at the end of which was a four-bladed screw propeller 9 feet in diameter. The monitor would have a top speed of 8 knots. The ironclad would be fitted with all kinds of engineering innovations and mechanical gadgets designed by Ericsson, including two below-waterline flushing heads that were situated on the starboard side for the enlisted men, and a single head for the officers located on the port side. The ship was one of the first vessels credited with utilizing below-waterline flushing toilets, and their operation took some getting used to. In fact, on one occasion, the ship's surgeon operated the valves in the wrong order, and he was propelled off his seat by a jet of water. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the kind of fascinating historical toilet trivia that you'll only get here on the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Okay, so moving right along. 
Heeding Lincoln's folksy wisdom that there was something in it, the ironclad board approved Erickson's design, but specified that the ironclad must be absolutely complete when delivered and that it must be built in 90 days. Furthermore, the ship had to prove to be, quote, a complete success, end quote, or the builders would refund the $275,000 the government agreed to pay for it. Significantly, the contract didn't define the criteria for success, but Erickson was so confident in his design that he signed the agreement on October 4, 1861, just 18 days after the board formally recommended the adoption of the designs for the Galena New Ironsides and Monitor. And here's another bit of trivia, but for some inexplicable reason, the government contract called for Erickson to furnish the monitor with masts and spars so that she might make six knots under sail, even though the design made absolutely no allowance for anything but steam power. And in the end, Erickson decided to simply ignore this ridiculous demand, and when he turned the monitor over to the Navy, no one ever said anything about the missing masts and spars. Anyway, once the contract was signed, Erickson got started at once. The ship's keel was laid on October 25, 1861. Erickson subcontracted several parts of the vessel while he kept a close eye on the construction of the hull and turret. Erickson decided to name his ironclad the Monitor to signal its purpose to admonish and punish the South for its rebellion. The unique features of the Monitor, specifically its almost submerged hull and its rotating turret, caused some observers to mock it as Erickson's folly and a cheese box on a raft, or a tin can on a shingle. There were even doubters who predicted that the unusual vessel would never float and would immediately sink. But those doubters were proved wrong when the monitor came down the ways in Brooklyn on January 30, 1862, and floated with exactly the 11-foot draft Erickson had predicted. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
According to the terms of the contract, the monitor should have been completed and delivered to the Navy by January 12th. With her launch on the 30th, Ericsson had obviously missed the mark, but he'd still accomplished an impressive act of shipbuilding. As the date of the Ironclad's launching had drawn near, Gideon Wells and Commodore Joseph Smith, a member of the Ironclad board, searched for a suitable commander for the novel new warship. They chose Lieutenant John Worden. At the time he was offered command of the Monitor, the 43-year-old Worden had served in the U.S. Navy for 27 years, with varied assignments at sea interspersed with three tours of duty at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. Because of the glacial pace of promotion in the pre-war Navy, in 1861, Worden was still only a lieutenant and relatively far down the promotion list. But shortly before the outbreak of hostilities, he was selected by Gideon Wells to carry dispatches to Fort Pickens at Pensacola, Florida. Worden successfully completed that duty, helping the fort stay out of Confederate hands. But then on his return north by train, he was taken into custody and he remained a prisoner of war until being exchanged in November 1861. Lieutenant Worden completed his provisioning of the Monitor in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and on March 4th he received his orders to take her to Hampton Roads. John Erickson did not design his ironclad to be, nor did he claim her to be, an ocean-going vessel. Instead, with her flat bottom and shallow draft, the Monitor was designed for use in shallow coastal waters or rivers. And so with the Atlantic seaboard in the grip of a severe storm, Worden delayed his departure for two days, waiting for the storm to subside. Then, at 11 a.m. on March 6, the Monitor's crewmen secured a tow line to the steam tug Sethlow, and the ironclad was led out of New York Harbor. The Seth Lowe had been assigned the task of assisting the Monitor as she steamed south to Virginia. Two steam-powered gunboats provided an armed escort. By four o'clock that afternoon, the little flotilla had rounded Sandy Hook and turned south to follow the New Jersey coast. In addition to the Monitor's normal crew of 59 men, the Navy Department's chief engineer was attached to the ironclad to evaluate her performance. He recorded that despite the relatively calm seas, quote, as soon as we were outside Sandy Hook, the sea washed over the deck so deeply that it was not considered safe to permit the men to go on deck, end quote. Nevertheless, at 10.15 that night, the log recorded fine weather. Seven hours later, it reported cold and clear, and the flotilla was six miles to seaward of Atlantic City. That meant the monitor had averaged five knots throughout the night. By dawn on Friday, March 7th, conditions worsened. A light gale blew in from the west, and at 6 a.m., the monitor's log recorded very heavy sea, ship-making heavy weather. By mid-morning, the ironclad and the other three ships had been caught in a full-blown gale, and the monitor started leaking from the base of the turret. It had been designed to rest on a brass ring when not in use, and Erickson had argued that the immense weight of the turret provided an adequate seal, but Worden had ignored the Swede's advice and had raised the turret, caulked the ring with oakum, and lowered it again. Now the oakum was washing away, and water poured through, quote, like a waterfall. As waves broke over the ironclad, seawater also poured down the ventilation ducts, soaking the leather belts that turned the engine fans. 
They were designed to remove poisonous fumes, and when the water stopped them working, within an hour the ironclad's engine room was filled with carbon monoxide and carbonic gas. During the afternoon, as the storm continued to rage, the monitor's engineers struggled to restart the blowers, but the fumes forced them to give up the attempt, and the ironclad's chief engineer ordered the engine room abandoned. The poisonous fumes quickly spread throughout the ship. Half sinking and filled with toxic fumes, the monitor was in real danger of foundering. Worden signaled for help, and the Sethlow was able to tow the stricken ironclad near the shore, and there in calmer waters, the engineers at last managed to vent the engine room and restart their machinery, including the pumps. Disaster had been averted. By 8 o'clock that night, the gale had passed and sea conditions were moderate, and the monitor was ready to resume her journey. As the ironclad steamed southward, one of her officers reported a, quote, smooth sea, clear sky, the moon out, and the old tank going along at five or six knots very nicely, end quote. But then soon afterwards, the swell increased. The sea started breaking over the smokestacks and ventilation ducts again. For the next few hours, it remained doubtful whether the engines could continue operating, but somehow they kept turning. And then at one point, the tiller ropes came loose, and the monitor turned, quote, broadside to the seas and rolling over and over in all kinds of ways, end quote. It seemed likely the ironclad would be, ca- ironclad would be capsized at any moment, but within a half hour, the problem was fixed and the wheel was working again. By dawn on the 8th, the seas had lessened somewhat, allowing Warden to once again signal the Sethlow and request a tow inshore again. By 8 a.m., the Monitor and her escorts were in sheltered coastal waters once more, and the crews ate breakfast. They had come perilously close to disaster twice, but the ironclad remained afloat and her engine still worked. She was pumped dry, and then the voyage south continued. At noon on Saturday, March 8th, the monitor's log recorded, Fine weather and clear sky. The worst was behind them, and Warden sighted Cape Charles, marking the northern entrance to Chesapeake Bay. That meant the monitor was on the last leg of her epic maiden voyage. Later, the little flotilla sighted and passed Cape Henry on the Virginia side of the Chesapeake's mouth. From there, it was less than 15 miles due west to Fort Monroe and Hampton Roads. But Cape Henry was still in sight when the men on the ironclad saw shells bursting in the sky to the west and then heard heavy firing. As the monitor steamed on, coming closer to Fort Monroe and Hampton Roads, darkness started to fall and the flashes of guns lit up the distant horizon. When still about 10 miles from Fort Monroe, the monitor took on a pilot and the man confirmed what the crew had already guessed. The Virginia had come out of the Elizabeth River, and she was destroying the Union fleet blockading Hampton Roads. The Congress, battered and set ablaze by the Virginia, was still burning at 9 p.m. when the Monitor finally crept into the roadstead and dropped anchor alongside the blockading squadron's flagship, the USS Roanoke. Just after midnight, though, the Congress blew up in a spectacular explosion when the flames finally reached her magazines. Because of their struggle with the storm on the journey south, none of the Monitor's crewmen had gotten more than a few hours' sleep in the past three days, 
but captain and crew nevertheless prepared themselves for the battle that would almost certainly take place the following morning. Worden received orders to place the monitor alongside the frigate Minnesota, which had run aground while the Virginia was steaming about Hampton Roads, wreaking havoc earlier. Everyone assumed the Confederate ironclad would come out again on Sunday morning to finish off the Minnesota. And so, as the skies lightened on the morning of March 9, 1862, the monitor was anchored alongside the stranded frigate, looking, according to one observer, quote, like some undersized sheepdog in the shadow of a very large but partially incapacitated ram, end quote. And if that were true, then it only remained for the wolf to make its appearance. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Hampton Roads, 1862, First Clash of the Ironclads, by Angus Constum. This is a book by Osprey Publishing. It's a volume in their campaign series, so if you're familiar with these books by Osprey, Hampton Roads, 1862, follows the same format as the other volumes in the series. And if you're not familiar with Osprey books, um, they are, for the most part, uh, good introductions to whatever topic they're covering. They have uh, lots of illustrations, lots of maps, and they follow kind of a standard format where the book will look at the opposing commanders, the opposing forces, and then gives a background to the battle, and then the book will discuss the battle itself. Anyway, this particular offering in Osprey's campaign series is a good place to start if you're wanting to look a bit more deeply into what happened there between the Monitor in Virginia at Hampton Roads. And so that is Hampton Roads, 1862, First Clash of the Ironclads by Angus Constum. You can find it and all of our other book recommendations listed on the podcast website at www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then just a reminder that in a few days, we'll have the fifth members episode out to y'all. We used last month's episodes to look at Jefferson Davis, and so now we're going to see what Abraham Lincoln was up to in 1861 after Fort Sumter. We realize that after the shooting war started, we've sort of neglected Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, so we thought we'd rectify that by using some members episodes to catch up with what they were doing in 1861 after Fort Sumter. And so we'll use this month's members episodes, and probably also next month's, to look at what Abraham Lincoln was up to after the war started. And just a reminder that it's by becoming a member of the Strawfoot Brigade that you get access to those two extra episodes each month. And to do that, you go to the website and sign up to make recurring payments of just $5 a month. And by doing that, besides helping support what we're doing here on the podcast, you also get access to those members episodes. And we have a few new members to thank this week, Ryan and Robert. So thanks, guys. And with that, we'll say thank you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.